All around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate better and more resilient infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Welcome to the Engineers Collective podcast from New Civil Engineer with me, NCE Assistant News Editor Rob Hakemian. On this month's episode, we're going to be talking about the importance of placemaking in construction and engineering. We'll talk to our guests momentarily about what exactly placemaking is and why it's needed, but I'll give you a simple explanation. Placemaking is ensuring that a construction scheme results in more than just functionality. It's about ensuring that through a combination of planning, design and community input, the result of a scheme provides not just what the client desires, but goes above and beyond to give back to the public who use the space above and around it. It can be a complex procedure to fit all the pieces together in a way that provides the utmost benefit to all stakeholders, but placemaking ensures that the outcome is something that people will not only want to use, but will enjoy using, and hopefully will do for decades to come. While much placemaking is often seen in large cities where pockets of land are reclaimed for public use, it is also just as cherished and useful in smaller communities, which is something that we'll be sure to, to discuss today with our guests. And those guests are... First of all, Alex Scott Whitby, the founder and director of Scott Whitby Studio. Alex works on projects on both domestic and international fronts and is also passionate about education, working as Associate Professor of Architecture at Kingston University. He also gives lectures about architecture and the work of the studio to schools and universities worldwide. Alex's firm, Scott Whitby Studios, actually picked up the Placemaking Initiative of the Year Award at this year's British Construction Industry Awards for their Jubilee Pool project in Penzance. That was one of three gongs they walked away with that night for that project, so we look forward to hearing more about that. And alongside him, our other guest is Arcadis Iconic Bridge Director Chris Short. Chris is a fellow of the ICE with over 20 years' experience in development, design and construction of bridge structures. In his role, he is responsible for the development and implementation of Arcadis' iconic bridge strategy and portfolio, portfolio of projects. He also sits on Arcadis' developer-led infrastructure group, which focuses on urban development. His work brings him into regular dialogue with bridge architects, urban designers, and landscape architects. Chris and Alex, welcome to the podcast. So, uh, I've given a very cursory description of what placemaking is in the introduction, but uh, why don't you give us a more informed view? What is placemaking and why is it important for engineers and architects to consider it in their project? So I think I, I, I might go first. I mean, I think fundamentally, it's really about creating quality places where people want to live and work and be. And then as a, as a spin-off from that, I think what it's about is empowering communities and creating a sense of belonging that leads to community pride. And then, of course, from that spins off a whole load of other things. I think sometimes it's very difficult to measure those things because they're very subjective. And so certainly from an engineering point of view, I often find that projects are measured in very quantifiable, objective metrics that kind of miss an awful lot of this stuff. And actually, arguably, for the people who live and belong to these areas, it's this stuff that's actually much more important. I think it's really interesting um, hearing Chris's view on this because, you know, too often a bridge is a place that you just go from A to B on. And the best bridges that I know are the places that you dwell on and you sit on and you, they make positive contributions, not as a pure piece of infrastructure, but as a, a place of joy and a place of specialness. And so I think, and that goes to public spaces and, um, you know, 
cities and towns and buildings that can make contributions to place as well. And I think um, realistically, placemaking is about people and about healing and making great spaces that people enjoy. As exactly as Chris says, it's an amazing um, joy. You, you don't go out and you should never go out to say, I'm going to make a placemaking, a, a, a space that is about, it's going to win a placemaking award. And it's much better when communities find it, you know, through a kind of careful consideration and community position. Um, you have to search for it, but it's that kind of process I think is amazing. And I think I think it's one of those sides, one of those things that, that looking at it now and trying to describe it, and, you know, you probably struggle for words, but I can think of lots of places I've been to where when you're there, it's very obvious. It just, it, it, it links in with something, you know, deep in your mind about, about the quality of this place and how it makes me feel. Um and it's hard. It's hard to it's hard to put that into writing or into metrics or you know describe it. Yeah, I think it makes a. It's you're right. It's kind of it's maybe our training, our training in 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 our in my profession to, and I think in both of our professions to be kind of doctors of space. And again, space is nothing without the people who are inhabiting it or the communities that are being there. But that training that really ensures when you go to somewhere, you go, oh, I can see the potential in this space. I can make this space better. And it would be this thing or this this move that we make, and I think that's um, yeah, you're right. It's very difficult to put into words what's what placemaking means, but it's um, it's certainly. And I think people who say I know what placemaking is, and intrinsically are kind of it's tacit. It's not um, a kind of it's not a known thing. Yeah, very interesting. I'm uh, I like the idea that joy has a lot to do with placemaking as well. Um, and as you say, yeah, it is kind of hard to quantify, but perhaps by looking at specific projects we will which brings us nicely on to scott whitby's uh jubilee pool in penzance which as i said mentioned which i mentioned at the start won the placemaking initiative of the year award at this year's bcia so alex what can you tell us about the placemaking on this project firstly i can say that it's very much not just a scott whitby studio project it's a project that it required an, the entire design team from arabs geothermal engineering ingenuity um, to GEL, the Geothermal Energy Limited, which is a byproduct, which is a kind of joint venture between Arup and, um, another company kind of down in Cornwall to Web Yates engineers to PT projects to the whole, who are the services engineers on the buildings and, um, and other pieces to the pool designers. It was, it was a joint endeavor. And most importantly, it was actually down to the incredible inspired community in Penzance who had this dream to kind of turn this kind of little, this kind of large piece of public infrastructure into a place that could be the beating heart of their town and do it in a kind of innovative way. It was a, an amazing man called Martin Nixon, who is a graphic designer whose his brother was out on a walk and they were like, oh, you know, we could do geothermal energy. We can make a geothermal pool here. And then that crazy vision, that crazy idea was given to us and others to try and vision and, enable a project to happen so it i think the project is about the community and we we it, we fundraised over six hundred thousand pounds through a community share offer and other fundraising positions to enable this project to happen and to embed this project in the community and to create a place for the community particularly and through making a place that built a community and kind of grew the community, it then became a place for others as well. And um, so the, the pool's gone from 40,000 visitors um, before we did the refurbishment 
to now over kind of 90,000 people coming in year wide. It's gone from being only open four months of the year to now being open 12 months of the year, even to the fact that um, some friends went down with their, with their students to Penzance just last week and tried to get a swim in the geothermal pool. And it was fully booked, um, mostly by locals, dare we say. So um, I think it's a really exciting, it's, um, and I think that's what makes a place. A place is for the, is, it's okay for visitors to go down, but that doesn't make it a place. It really makes a place um, for, it's the places for those people who live there and live in that, in Penzance and West Penworth and make it, make, um, it's for them more than anyone. Yeah. And it's not just the pool, like they, it's kind of become a community hub as well, hasn't it? Very much. You know, it's very, um, it's like, again, the cafe was fully booked on a, on a kind of Friday afternoon in, in November. And I think that's wonderful. You know, it's a place with a great view and uh, a place that can kind of looks out on a stormy day where you can feel the weather and the kind of atmosphere surrounding you. So, it, and, you know, everything from, they have dog days the way they fill the pool with dogs now. And um, so we can't, just got to, can't think about just our kind of two-legged, two-legged or, you know, compatriots. We can think about our four-legged friends too. But um, no, it's, I think, um, yeah. And I think I come back to this idea of joy. I think it's a place where is a place that on a cold winter's day makes people smile. And I think the Christmas projects with bridges do the similar thing where people walk over and get that incredible view over a bridge and, you know, over a landscape. And that's something I think, you know, we can, there's not a lot of joy in the world at the moment. And hopefully through some of our projects, we can create real senses of kind of excitement and optimism in what we do and you know we were very lucky with this project we a lot of it was already there and our job was just to kind of realize its full potential and realize the community's potential and bring the community together to enable this project to happen very nice so chris on your end you gave a talk at this year's uh nc bridge design and management conference where you talked about our current urban landscapes and how they don't really serve the pedestrian and i was fascinated in there how you kind of gave a, an overview of how how they're mostly made up these urban spaces and and what could be redressed what so can you give us a quick potted version of that yeah i think so so like i think lots of our cities have essentially remained unchanged for 40 50 60 years you know and these streets at their core have largely remained you know un, un, unchanged from from back in our grandparents or our, or our parents days and when you contrast that with the remarkable transformation, I'm sure we'd all agree in things like technology and culture and the economy and work-life balance, it's it's no coincidence. It's no coincidence that they start to feel like they've they've diverged a lot. Um, and I think many of our streets really persist as a solution to a problem from from the past. And but I think it's crucial that we don't vilify them. And you know, we should recognise that. At a certain point in time, they've they've made a huge role in in the in the development of our cities, but you know we shouldn't now shy away from identifying their shortcomings and and trying to take action to improve them. Um, and I think very simply, prioritising a fairer allocation of space is crucial. And and I, I, I don't think that that's necessarily about car free zones. I think the whole car free thing needs a massive PR revamp. I think an awful lot of the car-free narrative and the 15-minute city nar- narrative has really divided people, put people on opposing sides and, and just sets up a whole load of you know conflict. Um, 
I think it's just about creating a city with fewer cars, not necessarily banned cars, and, and offering alternatives for that sort of urban transportation. Um, I think although we might perceive the UK as being quite a rural, semi-rural country, 80-something percent of people live in ur- urban areas, and, and, you know, and that's going to grow. And so it's really essential that we take every possible measure that we can to enhance those spaces um, to make our cities more people-focused. Mm. Off the top of your head, do you have any examples of where that's been done well in the UK? So I think, I think I, I, you know, there's, there's, I actually think London, despite being our, our biggest urban centre, is, is doing this kind of stuff really well. You know, I think, I think the Mayor of London is being bold and is being brave and no doubt receives an awful lot of criticism. But, you know, on the face of it, you would think getting around London's a bit of a nightmare, but it's actually okay. It's quite, it's quite nice. Um, you know, I think I think one of the huge things that we really need to look at is the allocation of parking in cities and how much space parking takes up. If you think about, and I'm sure I said this in my talk in the summer, but, you know, the average UK car moves at 20-something miles an hour, does 12,000 miles a year, basically means that your car runs 24 hours a day for eight days and then sits still for the rest. Of the, you could drive your car 24 hours a day till the 8th of January and then park it up, and that is how little it's actually used. And yet, you know, I, I'm here in Edinburgh today. Edinburgh, I think, is one of the more progressive cities around cars and transportation. And yet you'll walk along the street and they're lying littered with parked cars doing nothing, providing no value in a piece of urban land that could be put to better use. And Chris, I think it's really interesting what you're saying there, because if you look at um, the City of London as an example, and the Corporation of London that's made some really incredibly brave, de- brave decisions about people first, and it doesn't just work. Like we're the we're doing a lot of uh, of the urban realm design on Cheapside and um, in in London and around the kind of kind of one of the oldest streets, London. And that drive towards creating great public space is driving financial benefits to the kind of the people in Penzance. It's quite amazing the uh, kind of people in the city. It's an incredible um, kind of change, step change. And I think at the beginning of projects, not just in the city, but in other places we've been working in, in the public realm, and there's a lot of kind of people go, oh, you can't take away the parking on the street. It's going to be awful for, you know, commercial acumen. But actually, it does the opposite. It becomes, once you take it away, places thrive because people are walking past their shops, not kind of driving past it and, you know, trying to find a car parking space to stop. So um, it's really, it's fascinating. I think I couldn't agree with you more that if you want to make great places, get rid of cars. Yeah, Get rid of cars or put them somewhere different. I think so. And I think all the statistics now point towards younger people just car ownership is beginning to go down, car license uptake is beginning to go down. You know, when I, when I was a graduate, all my peers own cars. I look at I look at the graduates in my in my team now, and you know, and it's much less. Um, I mean, it's a it's a apart from anything else, from a personal finance point of view, owning a car doesn't necessarily make an awful lot of sense these days. It's not a cheap endeavour. So yeah, I was curious, Alex. Maybe your work on cheap side will will inform this. But wh- where does the impetus to integrate placemaking into a project come from? Is it the client or the designer or is it legislation? I think it's um, it can depend. I think. I believe placemaking comes, I think we set out with all projects to think about how we integrate our projects with it into the kind of wider communities, um, the wider context. 
And I think a good place is rooted in its context and comes from its context and in most cases couldn't be anywhere but its context that it sits in. Um, so I think maybe through that kind of process of making a project, you can develop a good place for a project. You can develop a good project um, in those ways. So I think it comes does come from the design, but I think importantly, it comes from the client and as I say, from the other people, the other stakeholders around it. And um, I think, so I think you could say it comes from all three, the legislation as well. And legislation is informed by, you know, our desire to kind of reach out and understand kind of the wider impacts of what we do. Um, you know, Penzance's in placemaking also comes from a desire to be one of the most sustainably kind of powered open air swimming pools in, you know, the UK, if not the world. And though we came, we came up against huge kind of pitfalls with that. We had, you know, we had, um, you know, we couldn't get a kind of grant because we didn't have a cover on the swimming pool, for instance. Now, you know, and so we ended up having to put a cover over it that, you know, we were thinking we had to go through so many different design iterations to try and get a cover. And we worked out anything we could do was just get a normal, normal swimming pool cover. But, um, so I think, yeah, but I think placemaking, I, I, I don't think you can, I think it's, I don't think you can detach it. I think people who try and say, set out, any client who says, I'm going to set out, as I say, I'm going to set out to do placemaking. You kind of tend to get the kind of egotistical kind of daft, you know, wine bottles as tower, as tower blocks and that we've all seen in, in, you know, other cities around the world, in other cities around the world. Thankfully, not in the UK. And, you know, we get kind of this egotistical driven placemaking. I think placemaking has to be rooted in place. Very interesting. And I was going to go to Chris on the next one, which kind of feeds onto that, which is what what is the best way to make sure placemaking is done in a valuable way in a project? So I think I think probably one of the best things you can do is is not eval- not not link value to cost. You know, I, I think... There's absolutely financial pressures on all of our clients. You know, you only need to look at the news and the current state of the economy. You need to look at local authorities who are really struggling to make ends meet. And, and the idea of them turning around and saying, well, you know, we, we have this project that has a, that has a necessity part to it. And we're also going to spend money on placemaking. You know, that, that understandably from the local community and taxpayers can, can draw an awful lot of criticism, but, you know, I don't think placemaking has to be grand and expensive, and it certainly doesn't have to be years in the making. I can think of lots of projects that have five, six, seven-year gestation periods that really cost a fortune. And when they arrive, they're a little underwhelming because everybody's been promised the earth for six or seven years. You know, it, it can be really small and frequent interventions. You know, arguably, you could say take the same pot of money and spend it in three or four different places using only a quarter of the money at a time and cumulatively and collectively that wider spend. I mean, there's obviously comes a point where the dilution becomes a bit ineffective, but it's definitely not about grand plans. Um, I think I would much rather see, as I say, four or five kind of smaller interventions than something significant that, that basically stands out like a sore thumb in a, in a pretty dismal city landscape. And I think that's exactly right. What Chris is saying, I, I, I think I suppose I'm arguing against the, the big, those big kind of crazy gestures, as in Chris is almost looking at one in Edinburgh, it's, um, the turd on the um, top of a building, you know, that kind of, that kind of, that thing, which is someone would have said, oh, that's placemaking. We'll make a place by doing that. And it would have been sold with a 
terrible render that would have made it look kind of okay. And now everyone's have to, has to live with it versus those very small and much more discreet changes to, you know, you know, which, uh, you know, that is, we should set out to be humble as designers with placemaking. Um, I think. Yeah, that's actually made me think that is there, I think what you both kind of alluded to, is there a risk of, of designers just throwing in a placemaking aspect to try and make it more appealing to, to the community or to the people who are funding it? I also think that we have to be really honest with ourselves that for as much as architecture and engineering sounds really exciting, the vast majority of the day, the, you know, the day job can be a little bit dull and there's, and there is a temptation to, inject a little bit of excitement in, into your project or, you know, um, try, try and make these things a little bit um, more exciting. That, and it doesn't add value. As in, I think that, I, I think you're, I think Chris is exactly right about the value over cost in some of the works we're doing with placemaking. And it does repay as we're seeing, you know, the, 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 the value back to Penzance from actually a relatively small investment in the, in the pool is, quite um amazing and i think that you know we're, we're still trying to quantify those numbers to um to understand that completely but it you know i think we have an opportunity we have a duty of care in both our professions i think to be you know to to do no harm and i think sometimes people can do more harm by by trying to inject placemaking aspirations into a place that into something that probably over exit and we have to be really careful especially in this in a world where you know our the amount of carbon we use for anything needs to be accounted for and you know we shouldn't be you know we should use that if we're going to do it we need to make sure we do it properly mm -hmm. and, and something that if you do a placemaking project properly and you must have seen this with the jubilee pool alex is is it as you were saying it goes beyond monetary value there's also improved mental and physical health for people isn't there Absolutely. I think, no, the, well, to me, the great joy for me with the Jubilee pool is, um, yes, is mental and physical health that comes from it, but also connections of, um, family and families in history. So to give you an example, my wife's grandmother, um, learned to swim in the Jubilee pool when it first opened. Um, my wife's mother learned to swim in the Jubilee pool when it first opened, but my wife, would never go swimming in the Jubilee pool when she went down as it kind of lost its impact in the community as a, as a place. Um, and we started doing the work down at Penzance actually through this remarkable lady called Patricia Brown, who introduced us knowing that I had family connections down in Penzance and to help kind of think about it. And we, um, and we started this project and it was a grueling project. It was, you know, very, it wasn't easy. It was a real a kind of a, a journey to get to the get to the end and to finish it and then lockdown happens and so we the kind of pool um and which was obviously we just finished one one phase and went to the second phase and i had my my youngest daughter is called freya and she's five and she was one when lockdown happened and we were so it was one of the most amazing moments and i still kind of croak when i say it but my um but freya um, after lockdown, I think it's the first lockdown, the geothermal pool was open and we, we'd been, we were shareholders and we got, um, we got into the pool. She hadn't been swimming. She was refusing to swim. And my other daughter, who's nine, Lyra, loves swimming. She's like a water baby because she would swim every day. And as she went into the pool and she realized it was warm. It's kind of bath water. This is like age two. 
and she swam kind of independently, okay, in a float to her grandmother in the Jubilee pool. And that for me is kind of place. You know, that person, it connect, it connected a grandmother to, you know, her granddaughter and a history through time. And hopefully, you know, she, and she now sings this little song whenever we get down to Penzance and even before she goes, Jubilee pool, Jubilee pool, Jubilee pool. And then it took another article. Bizarrely, we were nominated for the AR Emerging Architecture Awards and the Architectural Review kind of came through the post and there was the Jubilee pool in this paper and it had, and she's just realised how to spell her name and she saw Scott Whitby Studio next to it and said, Daddy, what do you have to do with the Jubilee pool? And I was like, well, Daddy helped kind of grow it. It's just, oh, really? I didn't realise that. So, you know, placemaking is one of those things where you kind of, you get to watch generations and families kind of, yeah, it makes you, you know, even when a five, when a five-year-old turns, little five-year-old turns around and says, my daddy was part of the Jubilee pool. That was quite a special moment. <laughs> Very nice. But um, what else about placemaking? What are the other tangential benefits that we could list off? Oh, sorry, let's go on with that. Yeah, so look, I think with the pool, the, the incredible things about the pool, um, that's the kind of historic side. With the, the the mental health and the physical health is incredible. So, they, so the pool now is in place and the NHS can um, refer people to go for swimming lessons in the hot water swimming pool which is remarkable um you know people are going cold water bathing have been cold water bathing on that site for a long time they now go in the winter and include in the summer um the you know these offering a destination for someone to go on a walk to the end of the promenade and then jump into 35 degree hot water is quite amazing but also yet yeah, jump into the sea at 14 degrees is um, also quite positive nice uh, but also I guess it, in more urban realms that you focus on, Chris, there's also, you know, commercial benefit, isn't there? There is, yeah. You know, and, and, and just thinking about that, that, that comment that Alex made, made earlier about, you know, if you remove parked cars, then, then people that all of a sudden, you know, are happy to be in that area and you end up with, with spin-off trade, you, you end up with, you know, small investments around retail opportunities and, and, and pop up whatever food stalls, cafes or anything like that, you know. I think we do need to recognize, and I feel like the country's really not happy about coming to terms with it, but I think it's fair to say the age of retail is over and that you know, I think there is a future in retail, but I don't think it's a, a, a the high street like it was in you know the you know the two thousand and the twenty tens. And you know, the longer we try and reinvent it without fundamentally changing it, I think it's going to continue to fail. I mean, people's habits have changed, and they've obviously changed significantly and rapidly with the pandemic, as we've started to see better value in terms of how you can use your time. But that doesn't mean to say that city centres are now defunct and derelict. You know, they can be mixed-use hybrid spaces. I think one of the other things that's really important is recognising that at different times of the day and different days of the week, these spaces need to do different things. Um, and I think, it, you know, there is the potential to make these spaces much more vibrant and have much more social value, much more sustainable and much more resilient. You know, you think the whole idea of the retail collapse has that, that's come has come because our cities, a large part of our cities put all their eggs in one basket and and are now struggling with that adaptation challenge. It's really interesting to say there, Chris, because we're working with British Land on and have been working with them for a number of years on the Broadgate estate projects. And British Land had this incredible um, slogan for Broadgate, which was places that people want to be. And everyone was kind of a bit like, oh, how are they going to do that? And what's been fascinating 
being part of the kind of wider framework team for British land on that project is watching the Broadgate estate, where the focus was on the public realm from DSCHA's remarkable exchange square um, to the work they did around kind of lowering the fulcrum down the Liverpool Street Station. It is becoming a real hub of a place as people want to be because they've invested in the placemaking in the public realm. And that kind of idea of the places that anyone can walk through and can inhabit and anyone can sit and dwell and can, and I come back to that word again, that word of joy, a place that people just want to sit, stand and stare. We, we use this poem by W.H. Um, Davis, Leisure. And he goes, what if life is, what is life is full of care? We have no time to stand nor stare. Um, and I kind of, you know, even in a busy city like London, finding those spaces that just make people stop just stand stare and you know sometimes watch as the poem goes on says watch those feet how she could dance kind of thing you know it's a wonderful poem it talks it literally you know leisure and joy and those moments of dancing as you know can be incredible and we were lucky at the pool that's happened in other projects but it's broadgate is a remarkable example of that and uh definitely worth going to see if you haven't been already. Nice. Uh, one thing we should make clear, if we haven't already, is that placemaking doesn't always necessarily have to be like flattening somewhere and starting again. Like there's been a lot of uh, bridges. I know in Manchester they repurposed a rail viaduct into an urban park, or there's the under the arches of all the bridges around London. Uh, so wh- how can we make sure that that kind of thing is happening more often? So, so I, 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 I would say that one of the really big challenges is making sure that you're not doing these things in isolation. So, you know, you take a bridge and you repurpose it, or you take a street and you repurpose it and you remove cars. But what's beyond that? I mean, if, if I'm going to go to that street, I want to go somewhere else afterwards. And I think one of the things I was thinking about, and I've talked quite a bit about, is how, as professionals, all the way from university and onwards, we're all put into silos generally around disciplines and, and sectors and that kind of thing. And and what you begin to realise is that whilst the, the technical delivery of this stuff might sit in one team, the conceptual development sits somewhere else in the same organisation. We don't seem to be very good at joining up the dots. I, I, I think that, you know, what we need to be doing is having a city-wide strategy around reuse and transformation to make sure that it's not happening in little ineffective pockets where, you know, if if, if you consider that this is relatively new as, a, as an urban philosophy, what, what we must be careful against is not being effective for people to become completely disinterested and suspicious of this as an idea and for it to just disappear. You know, we will only get one crack to do this right and to really capture people's imagination. And if we do, then the rest of it will fall in behind. But if we're seen to squander public money, have these vanity projects that don't really do anything, then why why would we get the green light to do more? It's interesting what you say there, Chris, because, you know, and I, I, and I'm, I kind of worry sometimes about the terminology of this, but... In cities in Europe, you have the city architect, for instance, whose job it is to kind of think about those levels. And a really good example of that is a guy called Finn Williams in Malmo, for instance, who's a, you know, architect who used to work as a, um, in the planning department and in Croydon and then moved to set up this incredible organization called Public Praxis, which is really kind of spreading its wings out to be a multidisciplinary organization that brings kind of multi multiple professionals together to kind of support planners. And I think it's, it's strange that we don't have that kind of role where there's someone who has the vision, 
you know, our great cities, our incredible cities don't have those people who are, you know, we, we have thought that that's not something that's important in the UK. And, you know, I don't think that every small town needs it, but I think Manchester, London, you know, Leeds, Newcastle, kind of all of the, those cities of kind of larger scales, Birmingham, they, we, they could do with someone who has the vision. And that may not be an architect led it, but, you know, it could be an engineer, it could be, a, you know, others who, you know, just someone who holds that as the kind of, holds the conch to be, you know, how do we make those cities great? The city of London, for instance, has this, um, you know, it's got this new idea, which I think is really interesting, by, run by a guy called Tom Nancolis, which is Destination City. And it's linking up this idea from the cult, it's a kind of a development from the culture mile into the whole of the city of London saying, how can we make this, make the city of London the place that people go to 24 hours a day, seven days a week? You know, my, one of my first projects was to draw a nolly map of the city of London when I was working with my students. And we drew a map of the city of London, um, which included every place that you could get into, um, for the price of under of a pint at that time under five pounds and we did that during the week on a weekday and we did that at the weekends and it was remarkable the difference between the two the city is now transforming itself to being a place where you can be there you know you could it's as open in some places as it is in others um but you know i think having visionaries and um, people who are trained in the in space in in making spaces is what we need in our in the country at the moment mm, yeah it sounds like a whole different uh, discipline, academic discipline, almost. I don't think it is. I think I think it could blur from all of us. I think you know. I think each city, you know, may have different problems, and I think you could. I don't think, as in, I'm the son of an engineer, and I would say that you know, I've been in conversations with many engineers who are as good at thinking about space as architects are. Um, but actually, we can work together, and we need to be much more collaborative and more again humble about where ideas come from. I think I think we probably also, I mean, I, I, Alex, I, I, you might have a different view on this, but I, I think we can get an awful lot better at community engagement. I often kind of think, you know, we talk about community engagement, but more often than not, it's community notification. And you and you turn up and you say, listen, we, we've all, us, us paid professionals, we've all been brainstorming and we think what you guys need is this and we're going to let you pick the colour. And that's the community engagement. And actually, when you think about... I'm sorry, I was just going to say, when you think about the nuances of spaces and all of those things that you can't measure and that you can't see, you know, the lived-in experience of, of of a community citizens, I think, is invaluable. And that's not to say, blank piece of paper, you know, that there's an absolute guiding hand required. But I think we could probably do a bit better on that. And Chris, I was about to say, I, totally, I couldn't agree with you more, as in, we've actually now just got to a position with our projects where we have a certain process where we actually go into residency and we go into residency and we, we refuse to design anything before we start a project with the pool. We did that. We went down, I went down to Penzance and spent two or three weeks. Okay. Over the summer holiday in Penzance, listening, talking to locals, going to the pubs, talking to people saying, what was it that Penzance needed? We do that now. We did that with the projects in Westminster for the church house. We went to the building, understood what the, what the, doorman wanted as much as what the chef wanted to also people outside of the building to say what was this but what could what was the potential of this building and did all that before we did any design work and i think we have to we have as a profession we have to be better at being active listeners um and engaged listeners rather than um kind of wielding the mighty the might of the pen first 
And I think that's something that I couldn't, yeah, I think, I think listening and engagement with communities, meaningful engagement is so powerful when it's done properly. Um, also communities now are so, you know, it's amazingly how disarming if you go and say, we haven't designed anything. We just want to listen to your, what your views are. They go, what do you mean you haven't designed anything? You know, it becomes a, you know, and it actually becomes a really powerful tool. They think, oh, actually, actually, you actually want to listen to what I'm going to say. You know, otherwise you go up with ideas and they go, yeah, I've seen that before. And I, th- and I think that also then at the other end of the project, that then fosters this sense of kind of community custodianship over a project. I can think of lots of projects that are very nice projects and, and they get built and the, and the construction team and the client team leave and then they just fall into disrepair and they don't really feel like they're valued within the community. And of course, inevitably, all the generalizations about teenagers and, you know, loitering and getting up to no good. But fundamentally, everybody's rocked up, spent tens of millions of pounds on a piece of infrastructure that no one's really that interested. And you can't be surprised that they're not that you know, they're not that committed to it in, in the end. I mean, I, I think one of, the, one of the other things that's really challenging, and I think I experience a lot, is this notion of funding windows. We have to be on site by this date. We have to spend this money because it times out. And so, and there's just this sense of urgency that, you know, if we don't hit this milestone, you know, the project's not going to continue. Um, I don't know how to fix that, unfortunately. I think I couldn't, as in buildings only survive, and this is, you know, my work at King's University, you know, you see it through studies that we do with students. Buildings only survive because people love them. Yeah. Buildings fall into disrepair so quickly and spaces fall into disrepair so quickly because someone doesn't pick up that piece of litter or, and then someone doesn't, and then someone goes, well, if that person drops the litter, then I'll, I won't, I won't pick it up. And, you know, that was fascinating. We found amazing on the first day we designed this Ripley roof on the pool and, um, we had the, some locals were walking past and they said, you've made the best skate park in the world on this roof. Cause it's a kind of the perfect half pipe and perfect, those kind of things. And, um, and they did, they, they skated on it once cause they wanted to tag it, but then they've now, they now have ensured that no one else wants to skate, goes skating on it cause it's too precious to them because they were part of that process. So we talked to them about this idea. Um, and also they could fall off easily, but, um, you know, if they, but it was a, but it was really interesting watching that community who, first of all, saw it as an opportunity to kind of tag. And then they and now really love it because they also get free um, swimming in the pool. And the pool's now open out to them to say, hey, we're a place for you as much as we're a place for anyone else. And I'm, I'm just so, I'm, I think it's so important. And we forget too much about teenagers in space, I think. We're really good at designing for six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, but there's a, that kind of age between nine and 18. You know, how we design for and engage that generate, that kind of cohort is something that I think we all need to get much better at, and it's not just skate park. Very cool. So just to finish, if we were to look into our crystal ball and if, if say, over the next half century, century, we, like, all projects did follow good placemaking uh, procedures. What what do you think a future town or city might look like or, or feel like to live in? Either if you want to have a go on that one. I think um, it's a place where people of all generations are walking or kind of using aids to walk from place to place. They pick up a 
you know, they pick up these new kind of, they're not even called cars anymore, these automated transport vehicles that kind of arrive and take them off to their shopping and you know, potentially bring them back if they need to go. But actually, it's an active kind of town or city where people feel engaged in the kind of, in the public realm, they feel engaged in the buildings that have happened. They feel they have ownership over it and they feel that they're proud to live in that place. Mm. Very nice. And I, and, and, and I think, crucially, at the very top of that sort of hierarchy within those cities, we have someone who's brave enough to sit up and say, you know, we need to do things differently. And we're, we're not doing it like we used to. Yeah. Well, great. Let's hope that that's something we will see going forwards. Those who forget the past are condemned to it. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's a nice way to end this conversation. Um, thanks both of you, Chris and Alex, for joining me and, and providing lots of great insight into placemaking. And hopefully people will appreciate it more or maybe get more involved in their communities where there are projects going on and that they could shape potentially. Uh, so that's all we have time for on this month of the Engineers Collective, but be sure to join me again, Rob Hackham, again next month. Thank you. All around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate better and more resilient infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are advancing infrastructure.